Hey, welcome to today's episode. If you haven't already joined us on the Facebook discussion group, then don't forget to do that. Just search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Today, I'm talking to Chris Pockle. Chris is a veterinary behaviorist. He owns and operates the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon, and lectures internationally on dog behavior, which is how we met. Chris was speaking at the IAABC conference in Manchester, England, so I know you're really going to enjoy this one. So let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Well, hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Nick. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you on and obviously today we said we we're going to talk about coaching and the thing that I'm curious about because you come from a very different background and context to me is what you see your role as because so many times it feels like I think sometimes dog trainers and dog behaviorists can kind of fall into that kind of clinical way of um, seeing themselves or seeing their role you know, like it's the kind of stereotypical sitting on the uh, sitting on the person's sofa with the clipboard or whatever, and you know, really being very clinical about it. And I've always seen myself more as a coach than anything else, like a dog training coach, I guess. You know, so if someone comes to me with their problem and I help them figure it out, and we go through that process, and I show them the practical side of things, and I'm curious about what you see your role as. You know, in some ways, I would say it's very similar, and I, and I like the analogy of coaching rather than sort of therapist. And I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. Number one, the clients that we're working with are typically presenting an animal whose behavior they're trying to change. And so the therapist model is really more designed for the individual who is coaching the individual who is seeking behavior change. And it's that sort of one-on-one -on -one back and forth versus you know what we're often trying to do is to, to, to help the owners understand the behavior of the animal that they've presented for help and to figure out you know what can we do whether it's rearranging antecedent conditions or whether it's changing reinforcement contingencies or something along those lines to then say how can we change this animal's behavior but so much of of our role is either in either teaching a particular skill to the animal or in fact coaching the the owner or the client in this case, how to do that, that exact role. So I, I do think that the, the coaching model is probably a better fit for how we approach uh, this. And, and I think that the main difference, you know, perhaps uh, one of the main differences between someone like yourself versus someone like me is really more just about the tools that we each have available in our toolbox. And so, you know, someone who's trained more from the applied behavior analysis model, for example, is going to have a different set of skills in their toolbox compared to someone like myself who's trained more from the veterinary behavior model. But we both might be very qualified to be able to work with the same client. We just have access to different skills or different tools. And it works best when we collaborate, right? Like that's exactly what we were talking about before we went live. You know, I think that so many times when you take those behavior cases, you need the input of someone that has the medical knowledge to help you out with that but I'm so hyped that you agreed with me on the coaching front because I feel like when you take that therapist position people fall into the trap of giving people like a diagnosis with a huge report and just saying oh yeah you know just do a counter conditioning protocol and the client's like what <laughs> you know the client has no idea and I feel like there is so much more benefit to be gained when we maybe we do explain counter conditioning to them, but then we actually walk through the process with them and sh and, you know, see it through. Absolutely. And so many individuals, you know, who are in that role of, of you know, now that they're a client who has an animal that they're trying to change their behavior in some way, shape or form. They do not have the skill set or the knowledge or the experience or the, 
you know, the hands-on skills to be able to take that cognitive information of what is counter conditioning and desensitization, for example, and just automatically figure out, oh, so now this is what I would do on the walk, or this is how I need to reconfigure my home environment such that X, Y, Z. You know, most, most clients, especially in the earlier stages of that coaching experience, really do either need or have a significant benefit of that one-on-one -on -one relationship to sort of walk them through. And, and when we do that more effectively, I think it really improves the outcome for everybody involved in the entire process. Yeah, I think it would be wild to expect a client to understand how to implement it, even if we just explain the principle to them. You know, because I talk to professional dog trainers all of the time that maybe they're caught up on something, maybe they're caught up on lead walking or scent work or something like that. They understand the principles. They just have no idea how to apply that to this very specific task that we're trying to train the dog. Exactly. And, and I think there's so many different ways of coming at that from a, from a, from a coaching model. And I find myself, um, what, one of the patterns that I really have to be very aware of in my own coaching style when I'm working with a client is if I'm explaining something that's really either really specific or perhaps it's more of a complex topic, the phrase that often comes to mind for me is, did that make sense you know, when I explained it in that way? And, 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 you know, and assuming that I'm asking that question with a certain level of empathy and compassion, you know, what I'm hoping the answer is, is yes. And yet, just because it made sense when I explained it doesn't mean that the client has been able to internalize, process, then take that next step of saying, okay, now what would I do with that information? And how would I evaluate whether or not that information is actually working for me in this context? That's just not that's just not possible for most clients in the beginning. And so rather than asking that question of does it make sense, sometimes what I'll do when I'm remembering to do this within consult is ask a question more along the lines of saying, you know, I just went through the details of how we're going to, uh, let's say, keep, you know, prevent your dog from reacting to other dogs when it's, when it's out on walk, for example. You know, thinking about those principles, if you were to walk out the door right now can you think of three things that you might do differently in order to accomplish that goal? And so it allows me to, to really check, even in that split-second moment, did the client hear me? Did, the, did it actually, in fact, make sense well enough that they can process and implement? And if they did, awesome, then let's move on to something else because they've got that nailed. If it didn't, then I'm more than happy to come back and say, oh, you're not sure yet. Okay, well, then let's walk through that. Let's go for a walk. Let's figure this out. And so I'm able to give them the coaching at the level that is required for them without wasting a tremendous amount of time for both of our sakes on information that they may already need. And I'm able to speak to them at the level that, that is most beneficial. Wow, this is, I can tell already, this is going to be an extremely practical podcast. Um, there are three points straight away that just stood out to me when you're talking there. The question, did that make sense? You know, I say that all of the time and I can't remember where I read it, but I remember kind of someone um, telling me off for saying it at one point and saying, when you say, did that make sense? You're almost, um, it sounds like when you say that um, as an expert, it's almost like you're doubting yourself or you're... Um, or you're kind of undermining your credibility. But actually, I find it really helpful to make sure that the client understands what we're saying, because if they don't, then we're not going to see the progress. And I loved your point yes. about actually asking them the question of trying to get them to apply it, because the cool thing about doing that, which I found, is you get more investment in the strategy right? If they have played a part in coming up with the strategy, then they feel more invested to make that work, right? When you've, you've explained this, here's what we need to achieve. And then you've said to them, how can we do that? You know, and you've actually made them think about it. You've just explained all the principles, maybe, or you've explained what we're trying to do. And then you've, you've made them buy into it by having them come up with a strategy that, that actually works for them. And then also the summaries, like you, you mentioned summaries there. I, I love summarizing at the end of the sessions. I almost always do this. I'll, I'll say to the person, 
okay, what are we working on? You know, what are you going to be working on until I see you next? Right. And we will come up with three or four points that they can actually go home and do. Because it's it's one thing sitting there for over an hour and just talking dog training, talking dog training. But if they go home and they're doing the same stuff that they've been always doing, then nothing's going to change. Exactly right. And, and really being able to focus on a few things and doing them well, that allows me as, as the clinician in that case to then evaluate, is that enough? You know, if they do three or four things well, and then I come back, you know, in a week, two weeks, three weeks, 12 weeks, you know, whatever the circumstances dictate. And, you know, the, then, I, then I'm able to evaluate, has the circumstance, has the behavior, has the, you know, the goal, has, have things shifted? You know, was that enough? And if it was, awesome. Then that gives me a sense of what level of commitment is going to be required of the owner or the client. It gives me a sense of the flexibility of the learner and how responsive they are to a changing in conditions. And it also allows me to start talking, you know, a, a little bit more about sort of where we might go with the long-term, you know, plan that we've got in front of us. What is it going to take to get there? Because truthfully, if let's say we did those three to four things that we summarized at the end of a session, especially if we, you know, got the client's uh, involvement in creating that list and really defining what it is that they need to do, and then we come back in again three weeks, let's say, and you know, very little has shifted. Well, then we have an opportunity as part of that coaching model to say, this is where we started. This is what we've accomplished. Is that sufficient for you in terms of reaching your goals? If it is, awesome. Then let's keep going. If it's not, then we're either going to need to up-level our commitment in some way, whether that's the amount of time or the effort or the consistency or something about that. We're going to have to up-level our commitment, or perhaps we're going to have to downgrade or adjust our expectations. And as the coach, it doesn't matter to me which of those options the client actually chooses. You know, it's they're, they're the ones who are setting where they want to end up at the end of this process. So if they say, you know what, I'm doing everything I can, then I have the opportunity to say, well, you know, that's all well and good. And I'm concerned about our ability to reach those goals that you told me about in last session with this level of commitment. So we're either going to need to adjust that or we're going to need to figure out a way to get more impact in the time we have, or we're going to have to find some more time, or in my practice, that might be an opportunity to say, is there a role for additional medication or supplement support that would allow us to get more progress within that same commitment? But either way, it comes back to that discussion of how are we effectively you know, impacting that behavior change over time with all of those different methods. And, and the reason for the kind of uh, three things is it's very easy to overwhelm the client it's very easy to give them 10 things to do or give them the whole six month plan and when you do that you just completely overwhelm them and lose them so what i like to do is apply uh, Pareto's principle in a sense right what's the 20 percent we can do now that's going to give them 80 percent of the results and choose those three things wisely what are the three things i can give them now that are going to make the biggest difference and also it's the prioritization, right? I know you spoke about this before, Chris. If we're presented with a client that has 10 problems, right? We need to have an honest discussion with them about what is causing you the most pain right now. And of course, the dog. What's causing the dog the most distress? And then we need to prioritize some of those problems because trying to work on all of them at the same time just isn't going to work. Exactly. No, exactly. And there's, there's two things in there that come to mind for me. One is the, the last point that you just made about the priorities. Sometimes I'll have the conversation with the client to say, now, we can either prioritize the biggest problem first, because it seems to be the most pressing. In other cases, we may do exactly the opposite and say, wow, we've got some really big issues. I'm concerned that if we try to tackle the biggest issue first, before we get any degree of momentum within our plan, before we've got even some of the basics out of the way, that might not work so well in all circumstances. So maybe it would work to grab um, sometimes what we might call it, you know, the low hanging fruit, so to speak, go for something that's easy, get some success, let the client know what it feels like to actually see and feel success and see a difference in behavior. And then we can move on from there, which takes me to the other point, which is, you know, I may have that six month plan in my head. And as, as a clinician, as someone who's been doing this for you know 15 years, 
it all makes sense to me. But if I try to download that six month plan into the brain of my client who has none of that experience, they don't have the framework, the knowledge, they just don't have that yet. And so, you know, what we may say with clients in my practice is, you know, something along the lines of, you know, the eventual goal is to, to help your dog be comfortable with, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever the circumstances are. I feel confident in our ability to, to get you closer to that goal. Here's where I would like to start. Does that work for you? And so I'm, you know, establishing that confidence that, yes, in fact, I know how we're going to get there. I don't want to overwhelm you. So let's get started. And if the client has any objections or if they want to know, especially if they're more of the, let's say, uh, engineer processing type and they want to know all 37 steps, then I can give them sort of a superficial overview of how we're likely to accomplish that, but still without overwhelming and still at the end of it, pulling it back to those three things or those four things that are the priority for right now as we get started. And I think that a lot of people as we're talking now, are going to be thinking of aggression, separation, anxiety, all of these big behavioral issues. But the same is true of training. You know, if if I go to do a session with someone, I'm going to have a con- uh, have a conversation with them about if they have several training problems, like maybe they can't let their dog off lead because there's no recall. Maybe they uh, can't or they're not enjoying walking their dog on the lead because they have lead walking issues. Then we're going to prioritize one of those things usually this is where that Pareto's principle comes in again because this is a very common thing for me to see where people can't they're not enjoying letting their dog off lead because they have the no recall and they're not enjoying walking them on lead because they have no loose lead walking almost always i say let's nail the recall first because if we nail the recall first they can drive to the park have a fantastic walk with their dog off leash tire them out and once we've got that amazing recall it's going to help us get the lead walking down right but if we try to do both at the same time it's just it's just not going to happen and sometimes i will get clients who ask that because they don't understand what a processor is right so they will they will ask yes. can we do recall and leash walking and it's about i have to explain that exactly what i just said to you you know that prioritization and just making sure we get the recall nailed first because it's going to make everything else so much easier yeah, and it is an active dialogue with those clients and, and finding out what is going to be most important for them. You know, and if I've got a client, you know, uh, this may, may depend on the environment they live in. If I've got a client who lives in the middle of the city, for example, where maybe it isn't an access, you know, maybe it isn't an option to find that, that off-leash green space. So maybe we flip the priorities in the other direction. Absolutely. You know, it, it really varies from the client. And I think as, as, as uh, trainers, behavior consultants, or veterinary behaviorists, whatever our role happens to be, you know, we, we have to, to some degree, be flexible in, in our methodologies to be able to say, hey, I, know where, I think I know where we're going. And now let me sort of try that on for size with this particular client and be aware of how that client is responding to that information to figure out whether we're really hitting the nail on the head for them. Because if I end up giving them a plan that in their mind is incongruent with the reason that they sought out help from me, regardless of how good yes, my plan absolutely. happens to be, uh-huh. you know, I, I may have actually set them up for, you know, not only sort of a failure because their heart's not in implementation because they don't really get the, you know, the understanding of why we're doing it. But I also set them up for, you know, frustration and perhaps anger. And, mm-hmm. you know, why am I paying this guy to help me out with something? This doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, I need to make sure that before I start diving into the recommendations side of things, that the clients and I are actually in alignment with one another as to what we're focusing on and why. And, people... and if I don't have that, yeah, if I don't have that nailed down first, I don't, I don't have any, any, any opportunity to move forward. And I've known people get themselves in really sticky situations here where they've gone to see a client that maybe has, the dog has terrible separation anxiety, but the client's more interested in the fact that they pull on the lead, right? And then it becomes this really difficult task of knowing this dog has terrible separation anxiety and that's really affecting their quality of life and juggling that with the owner's desire to prioritize the more superficial lead walking. Yes. And there's so many, <laughs> there's so many things that pop into my head when we talk about that, because I, this, this, this idea of, of coaching and really 
you know, sort of enabling ourselves to be more effective and to help our clients understand the process. There's so many little nuances to this that can allow us to be more successful. And, you know, in those circumstances, I think it's, it's not uncommon at all to have that scenario that you just described, where as a trainer or a behavior consultant, our brain sort of zeroes in on a particular problem that we see because, and our mind starts to go into this, oh my gosh, you know, this, this is a priority because of X, Y, and Z. And, and I find, especially if I need to be able to, if I feel like I may want to shift that client's priority list, then it usually means I have a couple of additional questions to ask. And especially, let's use the example that you said, where we have this you know, potentially welfare concern for the dog with separation anxiety, but the owner's priority is on that loose leash walking through the neighborhood. And you know, I may ask the question, uh, you know, just to clarify, you know, you came to me looking for help with this 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 leash walking scenario. Let's understand that a little bit better. If we fix that problem, what impact would that have on your life? Oh, I you know, love that question. Right? I use and, that and question, Chris. What, <laughs> it, it, it's amazing, right? Because we may actually find that the owner's like, you know, gosh, I can tell that my dog has separation anxiety. And I just really think that if I were able to get my dog more exercise, it would make everything better. And their brain is focused on the leash walking piece. And they're seeing that as the obstacle to actually addressing the separation anxiety. When in fact, you know, once we uncover that information, we may actually be in perfect agreement as to our priorities. But we're, if we're thinking about them as two separate problems without seeing the connection between the two, we're going to feel like we're in conflict with that owner. And if, in, if we truly are in conflict, where they're like, no, 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 I just want to be able to walk my dog peacefully because I enjoy my walks, then that gives me an opportunity to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm, you know we, we can certainly work on this loose leash walking issue. I'm more than happy to help you with that. Do I have your permission, you know, in some way asking a per permission statement, you know, you asked me for help on this particular area. Part of my job is to look at the big picture and identify whether or not I think there are any other variables that may also be relevant for us. Can I share with you some of the additional thoughts that I have about your scenario? And then together we can decide whether that loose leash walking priority is still at the top of the list. And if it is, then awesome, let's move forward with that. If it's not, we can regroup and focus on something else. And so I'm not telling the client that we have to focus on the separation anxiety. I'm not just sort of following along with their lead about focusing on the loose leash walking, but I'm creating a conversation in which we can be open about the possible opportunities and decide together in a collaborative way what actually makes the most sense. And also in that situation, you might not have to address the separation anxiety straight away by going into treatment. Maybe you say to that person, I know that the thing that's causing the most pain for you right now is the lead walking. But I'm also a little bit concerned about the dog's uh, maybe state of mind during the day. Is there any way that we could resolve that? Is there any way that we could look at, obviously I wouldn't say this, but is there any way we could look at a management strategy, right? Maybe their parents are home all day and they're lonely and they would love to have them around. You know, they'd love to have the dog around. So sometimes you can... Sometimes you can go with the client and you're not always having to make that sell on what you see as the higher priority, right? Is something exactly. you can put management in place now and then come back to that once you've built more relationship with a client. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in that time frame, we may learn a lot more about the, the client, about the animal, about their living situation in a way that opens up the possibility of solutions we might not have even considered. Right, right as we're getting started. One thing that you uh, reminded me of, Chris, and this is one of the biggest things I've done in my business in the last year or so, is I've realized the importance of setting expectations before I even see the client. Right, so now my strategy has changed or the way that clients come into my um, into my business. So I don't see clients without them first scheduling a 10-minute phone call with me. We have a phone call. I find out more about them. I find out more about the issues they're struggling with their dogs. And then I'll ask the sort of questions that you did, Chris, where it's like, if we resolve this, what does this mean to you? What, how does your life change? You know, we, I'll ask those kind of questions. Um, I'll, I want to see how committed they are to resolving this problem. And if it is something that is going to take a long period of time, like reactivity or separation anxiety, then I say that straight up front. I say, look, um, you know, this problem that you you have, Chris, is going to take us 
potentially several months to to resolve do you understand that you know they almost always say yes <laughs> yes um and i'm making sure that i'm setting that expectation right away and because a lot of the times people are complaining about their clients wanting a quick fix right that that's in my experience that is a case of not setting expectations right before you even see the client right it way exactly i think i think there's so many places where expectations can be set you know and whether that's on the timeline that we expect for uh, for behavior change to mm-hmm. occur whether that's the time that you know or the amount of effort it's going to take for the average client to acquire mm-hmm. the skill set mm-hmm. to to allow them to kind of fill that role of mm-hmm. the the person doing the training on a day-to-day basis um, in some cases that might be sort of a, a financial or a monetary expectation mm-hmm. uh, in some cases it might be you know a com- you know completely other things mm-hmm. but it's it's uh, the you know the opportunity to set those expectations as best we can uh-huh. Uh, and this is also a place where I think we, we, we sometimes, you know, as, as professions get, get ourselves in trouble because ambiguity is uncomfortable, right? We want clarity. We want to be able to give our clients, oh, this is the, this is the 12 session package. This is the five session package. Uh-huh. This is, you know, this is my prediction. Uh-huh. And what I've gotten very comfortable with over the years is when I'm meeting with a client for the first time and I'm just getting started with some sort of behavior modification program for them and their animal, I've gotten very comfortable saying, I don't have the foggiest clue how long this is going to take us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've worked with individuals where I thought there was an incredibly complicated scenario. And lo and behold, we have a really flexible learner and an owner who just nails it you know, straight out the gate. And they're a sponge for information and they internalize that information and they learn how to make you know, amazing, amazing strides. And I've had other cases that look like it, if I had it predicted, it would have been a three-session, five-session complete cure, if you will. And here we are six months later still struggling to even feel like we've, we've started momentum. So I've gotten very comfortable with my clients to say, this is where we're starting. You know, our baseline is what we've uh, identified right now. I feel very comfortable in what I feel the first steps are to addressing that. When I see you again, it's going to give me an opportunity to assess your commitments, your implementation, your skill level, your communication style, your discipline. You know, I can assess those things at the same time that addressing, you know, and evaluating how flexible the animal is in terms of their learning style. How many reinforcers do we need to go through to find the one that works? How many reps does it take to actually shift that animal's behavioral repertoire? And so we get a sense of being able to establish prognosis. But I'm, I'm such a fan of the statement that, you know, that we can't predict what someone's going to do until they've done it. And it doesn't really matter how motivated they are. That's not the same thing as doing. And without being judgmental with my clients, I try to really let them know that, you know, I, I don't have the ability to predict what they're going to do over the next you know, minute, hour, week or month. And so we're going to have to do that next evaluation to figure out what that looks like. And, and, and I'll do my best to, to help you know, kind of forecast along the way what this process is going to look like. But to some degree, we have to get a little bit uncomfortable with an open-ended arrangement because I just don't know. And for me, that's as important within that expectation setting as anything else. Yeah, and I've run that experiment myself um, where – you know, someone has come to me with a problem and I've said, well, look, you know, Chris, if you give me a hundred percent commitment, then usually I reckon we can probably resolve this within say four sessions. And when that comes off well, it's extremely reinforcing because you look like Gandalf or something, you know, you look like (laughs) you, you feel like you've just predicted the future and it feels amazing. But when it doesn't work out in those cases that you explained, you know, and it isn't always going to work out, almost makes you come off as a bit of a con artist or that you sold them something that wasn't there. So I think that it's extremely dangerous to try to put predictions on it. And I'm completely with you. It's not the question that you, uh, you want to answer with a time frame. It's, it's you need to have that open-ended arrangement as you put it. Yes, no, absolutely. And yeah, and I try to tell my clients you know, that I'm, you know, my job is to, to help them as best I can. 
but there are so many moving parts within the process of behavior change. And I try not to overcomplicate it by naming all of those parts, but just saying that this, this is complicated. And, and we may create some examples within conversation about, you know, perhaps something in their own life that they tried to change. Mm -hmm. And I'll, to a simple degree, may give them the analogy to say, and, you know, that was when you were motivated for yourself to change a pattern. And it was still hard. What we're asking of this scenario is to change the behavior of another individual who didn't sign up for therapy. They didn't drive themselves to the appointment. They're not the one who said, yes, there's something about me that I really need to change. So it adds that, that, that additional level of complexity. And it, it's sort of funny when we use that, you know, that, that example with a client of you know, even just saying, I'm guessing your dog didn't make its own appointment today. They kind of look at me like, well, of course they didn't. No, they didn't. So I have to do the work. And it sort of starts to set the stage that there are sort of these complexities that have to be a part of the process. And it, it just kind of resets some of that, that this isn't, you know, this isn't a computer that we can just sort of plug some numbers into and expect a reliable outcome. And, and, and it helps to, to, to help us kind of know where we need to go with that entire conversation. That's such a great point. And I think that everyone can relate to how difficult it is to change your own habits. You know, how hard is it to establish a healthy eating habit or an exercise habit or whatever habit you want to establish? How difficult it is when you're trying to change your own behavior? <laughs> like you said, that's so much more difficult when you're then trying to change an animal's behavior, right? It's not even like it's someone else's behavior. It's an animal that essentially is a different species entirely. Yes. And so many of the patterns that we're trying to change, let's say we're dealing with that dog who is uh, reacting in a, in a perceived aggressive manner to other dogs when it's on leash. There's something about the behavior that they're currently doing that is working for that animal in some way, shape, or form. So not only are we asking them to do something different, we're also asking them to abandon the thing that evolved that seemed like it worked for them. And, and, and that, you know, adds for many of our, the animals that we work with, it adds an additional layer of complexity to that. Um, you know, and again, we don't necessarily have to walk the client through all of those details, but that's, you know, to the degree that they would benefit from hearing that, it's one more layer that we can add in to help them understand what this process really looks like. So how do you deal with the clients, Chris, that come to you and maybe they're doing something that you don't approve of? Maybe they are using aversives. Maybe they, they're using very old school techniques. Um, how, how do you deal with that? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Uh, and it's, it's one of the things I love, I love talking about. So I'm glad this came into the conversation. So it, it, you know, it depends. Obviously every scenario is gonna be a little bit different. But first things first, I mean, the, the, the initial step is, is the info gathering, you know, the data collection step. And, and I think it's really important when we're gathering information um, you know, let's say we're talking about that dog who, again, is lunging at other dogs when it's on lead. And, and we ask the clients, you know, and, you know, are there any interventions that you've tried? And they may give us whether it's the pinch or the prong collar or in cases or in, in, in locations where shock collars are allowed to be used. I mean, maybe that or maybe it's a verbal reprimand sometimes, or what, Chris, whatever. whatever the sometimes, Chris, they don't want to tell you either. They're nervous that you're going to uh, tell them off, essentially. You're going to have a go at them. Maybe they have been using a technique which they have a sense is wrong, but it's what someone told them and it seems to be working right now, but they're nervous to tell you because they're worried that if they tell you, then you're going to get angry at them. Yes. And there's, there's a technique that I've pulled from a, a line of, of, of therapeutic techniques called motivational interviewing that that allows us to really ask a question so if, if i have a sense even just by watching that uh, that client's handling style you know in, in watching them walk into the lobby if they're a little tight on the lead if i can see that that arm sort of giving a you know partial <laughs> leash correction for example i may just make the assumption and say okay so you're out on lead you're, you're out you see a dog coming down the street how does your dog respond when you give it a leash correction and I may just fill in the blank for them. How does your dog respond when you do that? And almost making the assumption. If they're doing that, and if I've approached that in a neutral way, I'm just curious with my body language and with my tone of, tone of voice, then I usually get a client who's willing to say, well, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Or, oh gosh, I would never in a million years do that. Oh, that's awesome. 
you know, and so it, I get I get valid information more often than not by making assumptions in that way. And it's not really that I'm assuming they're doing it. I'm leading the conversation in a way that allows them to understand that if they are doing that, that's in fact an open part of our conversation. And, you know, and then from then, if they give me just a little bit of a teaser, well, yeah, you know, sometimes I might get a little bit angry at him. Then my next question is always, and then what? How well does that work? What happens next? And I'm just going to lead them through those data points as, in some cases, even a little bit faster than they want to, because I want them to know that when they say, yes, I yell at my dog, that is not a stop to the conversation. I'm not going to jump off to the side and say, well, you know, in the land of force-free training and in the land of positive reinforcement, that would be, you know, that would be discouraged because you know there's all of this fallout associated with punishment and you're going to damage your relationship with your dog and you're going to blah, blah, blah. And we go into sort of this moral high ground, which eventually shuts down the conversation. So for me, it's, it's leading the conversation in a way that makes it feel as though those are all open conversation topics because they are. And I'm moving us forward until I have the data to then be able to say, okay, I now know sort of what your animal is doing. I know how you respond and all of that. They're just data points out on the table. So for me, that's all the foundation before I even get to the point of then starting to address whatever it is that they're doing that I may want to shift for them. Well, I love that making the assumption um, technique. I've, I've never heard of that before. That's some Darren Brown mentalism style shit (laughs) i love that that's so cool and i love your point as well about not um not preaching to them right because i think that as trainers that primarily use reward-based methods we are so prone to becoming evangelical right you're presented with someone that is using a prong collar whatever fill in the blank And your immediate reaction is that preaching, ranting, whatever you want to call it. And actually, I've always found the best strategy is to avoid that entirely. I'll have the the conversation, find out what they're doing, because obviously that's an important part of establishing the history. But I'm certainly, I'm going to avoid that um, ranting or, or, I don't, I will, I don't even really, unless it's really necessary, talk about the fallout. You know, I, I just differential reinforcement, right? Like here's, here's another strategy for, for this. Look, this is how it works, right? So often I'm not even having the conversation about fallout. I'm just showing them a better way of doing it. Unless it's really necessary for me to have that conversation. Exactly. And then if we're able to, if, if, if it becomes necessary or if it feels like it's relevant, how do we go in that direction? And for me, I find one of the easiest uh, inroads or ways to bridge that conversation, especially if someone is using more of an aversive, is as I'm getting the answer to that question of, and then what, I'm also trying to get information about whether or not, so let's say the, the, the owner is, again, back to that scenario, we're out on walking on leash, the dog lunges, the owners give a leash correction, uh, and then what, and then we go on about our day. I'm gonna ask the follow-up question, you know, when you do that, that, that leash correction, the way that you just described, does that stop the behavior in the moment? Yes or no. And then the follow-up question, does it feel like that changes the behavior the next time around when you go for the walk again tomorrow or the next day or the next day? And then again, I'm not going to pause and, and dive into that. I'm just, I'm just getting data at that point. Once I have the full big picture, that allows me, if I need to, the opportunity to come back to the conversation of saying, okay, big picture. We're looking at behavior change. Clearly, we've got a goal of, of, of you know, substituting or modifying the way your dog responds in that, in that particular scenario. So let's have a little conversation. And, and we'll, you know, again, we'll, we'll get into it in whatever way makes the most sense for the client. But what I want to get them the understanding of is that when we're talking about a particular method and whether or not it's successful, you know, quote, quote unquote, successful, what does that actually mean? And so if the client has already told me, as many of them do, that that leash correction stops the behavior in the moment, but doesn't actually change the behavior the next time around, that allows me the opportunity to talk to the client very briefly at a superficial level about the differences between an interruption or something that's truly functioning as punishment in a way that changes long-term behavior. And if what they're doing is aversive, 
but only functioning as an interrupter, then we have a golden opportunity to actually help that animal, help the learner understand a different way of being. Because if we're not, then that would be the opportunity if we need to, to go into some of that fallout without getting all technical about it. Just say, you know, if something unpleasant is happening, but it's not actually changing long-term behavior, then we do run the risk of compromising the welfare of the animal. And would you be open to changing that? I've got some things that I'd love to show you if you're open to that. If not, we'll move on and talk about some other things or we'll, we'll start practicing some other exercises. And I'm basically just opening that door to see whether or not the client wants to walk through. And at the end of the day, this is all comes back to that setting expectations thing because they wouldn't be speaking to you if they were happy with the situation that they're currently in. Bingo. Right? Yeah, absolutely no. right. Right. One thing you were saying, though, that I can't remember, I'm probably getting this entirely wrong, but I it reminded me of, um, there's a concept it's called like the Seneca method or something like that, of leading people to a conclusion without, but through the questions that you ask, right? But this is extremely important because you can, I find the tone is really important, right? Because otherwise you can imply the answer. Right. So if I say, yes. um, if I said to you, uh, we could go back to that lead correction example. If I said, um, why do you think the lead? Oh, the, you know, oh, Chris, why do you think the lead correction is having that effect? Right. That's very different to uh, Chris. Why do you think the lead correction is having that? Effect? Do you know what I mean? Like the tone, like you can imply, so there can be like an implied sarcasm if yes. you don't why get did you to... possibly think that was gonna work <laughs> yeah exactly You're like, well, who in their right mind would do that and exactly. expect that to happen so, so yeah that and we wouldn't actually use those words but the tone yeah so the the method is extremely effective provided you can implement it in a way that doesn't come across as sarcasm or whatever is that what you were getting at though yeah, it's certainly a part of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think tone and body language are just as relevant in our delivery as it is in terms of what we're looking at the animal that we're trying to change behavior of. And, you know, I remember back very early on in my behavior consulting career, um, you know, when someone had given me the advice of always having that ready answer of, and then what happened as a way to just move the conversation forward so that if and when the owner does share information, that could be somewhat emotionally charged or could make them somewhat vulnerable, I have a way very comfortably and confidently to move them forward with a neutral, curious facial expression to be able to say, and then what happened? Without you know, judgment, without my eyebrows tightening, without mm. me having to pause and take a breath uh -huh. or without having to you know, scribble furiously yeah. on my notepad or any yeah. of those things that the client may you know, tell them a story about how they think they're now being judged. It allows me to be able to just move the conversation forward. And I practiced it in front of a mirror. I recorded myself saying those words over and over again until I was able to deliver that in a way that, that appeared to be, again, curious, engaged, mm -hmm. non-judgmental, uh, and, and somewhat you know, neutral on that tone of voice. But it takes practice. If you don't have that, you have to develop that skill set so that the client trusts in the sort of the safety of the space in which they are, you know, volunteering that information for us. And also, I think that there are a lot of people that are involved in this industry that don't have those skills naturally. I think that that is one of those things where some people are real naturals at being able to empathize and have that kind of um, empathy in conversation and other people can come across as judgmental and if you're one of the people that struggles with those human skills you have to learn it right but one yes you have to learn it in practice and that's it. hard Absolutely. that's hard for sure um because yes it is yeah that's gonna take some serious practice in the mirror <laughs> one thing that you uh one thing that you said really nonchalantly chris that um i picked up was in your example, you said, and then you go back to speaking about your day or whatever. And that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize when they're coaching is a huge part of the session is relationship building. 
right? Like yes. in, in the sessions, you don't have to just talk about dog training or how to resolve this problem. Like you want to get to know the person, right? Like you want to have a little bit of um, conversation so that you can start to build the relationship because that's going to make the whole process so much easier. Yes. And I find that we, that when I'm working through those consults, especially with a new client, there are some times where the relationship building is very subtle, where it may just be sort of little, little nods to something that they, that they've mentioned, um, you know, something about the kids, for example, uh, and it might be something like, oh, you know, my toddler this or my toddler that, oh gosh, that's such a fun age. You know, it may just be that little bit of a comment that creates a personal connection. Yes. In other cases, if there's more information that I want to dive into, uh -huh. I may really sort of almost bracket it mm -hmm. in conversation by saying, I know this isn't the reason why you're here to see me today, yeah. but I, I just have a gut feeling that some of this information be, may be really relevant for how we're going to address those problems. W would you mind if we talked about some of, you know, uh, you know the way that your household functions on a daily mm -hmm. basis mm -hmm. or, you know, or, you know, tell me a little bit more about that thing that you mentioned, that trip you've got coming up. You know, what are you going to see? Where are you going? Why did you choose that location? Yes. Yeah. You know, think, things that, you know, and, I, and, and I, without sort of taking up a whole bunch of time within the consult, I'm able to, to create that relationship where, again, the clients feel like it's not just me sitting there, you know, as the expert on the other side of the room. Uh -huh. But in fact, we're almost more standing side by side yes. going for a walk in the park. That's so important. You, you, you immediately um, slice through the tension, don't you? You you immediately yes. release that pressure because a lot of people are feeling very nervous about having got a professional in. They feel like they're being judged. But if you can just, you know, make those little comments or nods to the fact that you're actually a human, you can immediately just put them at ease, right? Like if their yeah. dog's called Jon Snow, maybe you should ask them about Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> you know? Right. But regardless of whether you're a fan or not, right, you draw the connection, you, you create that point of relevance. And it, it's amazing how strong that sense of community can be built so incredibly quickly. And especially if you're someone who's going into the home and you're seeing sort of all of the, the, the personal effects that are there and the way that they live their life. Right. Oh, my gosh, there's so many things that we could call out without it being weird or awkward uh -huh. or intrusive. Uh -huh. You know, it could be something about the landscaping out front. It could be, you know, the the audio chime they have at their front door. It could be something about who knows what, but yeah. creating that sense of of, of connection and and personal uh, personal growth, personal relationship is is so helpful. Yeah, if you can find a mutual interest, that can be a really helpful doorway into the relationship building process. Right, like if you walk yeah. into their house and you see whatever it is, you know, like I mentioned Game of Thrones, but it could be anything, right? Like any, it could be the car they have. Maybe you have the same brand of car or maybe they have Pokemon stuff. You know, it's literally anything. But if, especially, yes. it really helps if you're, and obviously you're going to have to look, and I'm not saying you do this on every case, but it's just a helpful thing to do. You know, if you can find that mutual connection with them and then bring that up and then use that as like a pathway to building a relationship with them. And sometimes it can even become part of your explanations, right? Like, I, I love that you said that, Nick, because I was just thinking of that walking into a client's house, for example. And let's say there's a piano in the corner of the room. You know, I, I, I play the piano myself. And so I have, a, I have a, a, an idea, a mindset of, of sort of what it takes to learn musical skills for example right so let's say i've acknowledged that i've just you know like oh it's a beautiful piano oh gosh i don't i don't play as much as i would love to but oh it's beautiful and then we go right into consult but then later on i may come back and say you know we're we're going to be asking your dog to to learn a new pattern of behavior and that's challenging not unlike what it might mean if you've gotten a little sloppy with your piano techniques and you know you're you're not paying attention to that that sustain pedal, and we're going to ask you to become very aware of it and learn a new pattern. There, there's there's you know so I might draw a connection back to that mutual interest to create a relevance to the information based on on how that that factors in. And so bringing it back around to the reason I'm there in the first place, 
but it, it, it established a connection. It allows them to use some of the knowledge they already have to advance us within our behavior mod plan more so than if I felt like I needed to give them the nuts and bolts of a desensitization protocol in order for them to understand. Right, exactly. You know, the classic one for me is if I see someone that seems to be really into fitness in some way, then that's a brilliant doorway to explaining the importance of, say, repetitions, right, or daily practice or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Muscle memory or, yeah, commitment or consistency or any of those any of those correlations, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So are there any other things that I'm asking you genuinely because I know that you've already come up with a few things that uh, that have I haven't heard of. Are there any other things that you do when you're going into that consult that maybe like tips or tricks, those little things of maybe it's a certain thing that you say or you're looking for? Does anything come to mind? Yeah. Yeah. You know, one comes to mind as well. And this is, you know, something that I get a lot of questions about when I'm when I'm lecturing or speaking or giving workshops on some of these communication topics surrounding the field of animal behavior. You know, and that is how do you, and this is often the way that it's worded, how do you convince someone to change their behavior? Or how do you convince them that what you're saying is the right way forward? Or how do you sort of change their mind, you know, about some aspect of what we're working on? And, you know, I, I think this is, there, there's so many layers that we could get into. But, you know, but again, we I, I find that for most of our clients, the mindset that they come to us with is, to some degree, they're, they're seeking additional advice. They're seeking an additional opinion. So there's a certain degree of openness there already, which is great. And yet, just as we were talking about the behavior of the animal, their own patterns have evolved because they, 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 they were functional. And we don't always know why or, or how that all worked out. And so, you know, it can be really... Um, it can be really difficult for clients to hear new ways of being. And it's very easy to take that in a very defensive manner, especially if I say, oh, well, we're going to do this instead. And, and it would be very easy for the client to put up those walls. And so if I have any perception that the client is going to have a difficult time either hearing or implementing, you know, I may try a couple of techniques. One of them would be to, to utilize a statement, something along the lines of, you know, we're here talking about Sparky's anxiety level, and I can tell that you're really concerned about that. And I'll be very honest, you know Sparky way better than I probably ever will. And I've learned a lot about lots of dogs over the course of my career. Can I share with you some of the information that I know about anxiety? And then together we can decide what parts of that really apply to Sparky. So there's a couple of things that are really important within that, at least from my perspective. One is that I'm not challenging their understanding of Sparky. I'm not saying you're wrong and that I'm right or that what you've done is part of the problem or any of those things. I'm basically saying, you know your dog, I know dogs. Can we have a conversation? And that can we is a really important disarming step as well. To be able to say, you know, I, you're already here. So in some ways, it's an implied, yeah, I can tell you whatever I want because you've already asked for my advice. But in that moment, taking that pause to ask the client, can I share with you some of the observations that I'm making right now? I don't want to lose some of the data that we've got. Can I share that with you? And I've never had a client say no, truthfully, but they could. And yet when they say yes, it automatically flips a switch in the brain that their brain says, for this next moment, I am open to hearing what you have to say. And so that gives me an opportunity to share some information about either what I'm seeing or the direction that I think we may decide to go. And so, you know, we, in those permission statements, can I share with you, you know, if I had a way to, to change the outcome for us, would you be open to hearing about that? You know, you told me that you wanted your dog to do something different. If I had some ideas for how we might do that, is that something you'd want to talk about? You know, if would you, you know, those sorts of open-ended questions, it, it, it's, it's more of a, a model that certain therapists will use, again, to be able to sort of say, you know, I don't know if this is the right way forward, but it might be. 
can we explore that opportunity together versus again, me sitting on the other side of the room with my clipboard telling you what to do. It creates an entirely different model for the conversation to occur. What I love about that is as soon as you've said that, then everything you say after in terms of maybe the information that you relate to them, they're going to be looking for the connection, right? They're going to be hearing what you're saying and then trying to think of the context in which their dog might exhibit that. So you're really, I, I just love that about that question. But you seem to have a lot of these statements or questions that you ask regularly. How have you come up with them? Is this something that you've, is there some other connection here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, um, there's a couple of things. It's uh, number one, it's certainly, a, it's certainly something that I try to absorb as best I can from, from other industries. A lot of these topics actually about how to kind of lead these conversations. There's a lot of really phenomenal information out there that comes from more the sales and marketing side oh, of industry. I'm Completely so glad separate. you said that, Chris. I, yes, sales is huge. Yeah, it, People it, it, don't it, realize sales is is persuasion at the end of the day, and it's involved in everything that yes. we do. It's not the yes. it's not the car salesman. That's not the only application of sales. No, it's, you know, I, I am, when I'm trying to get the, the client to understand something, I am pitching an idea and I hope that they buy it. I mean, it's, it's a service related industry. It's a sales industry. If I'm saying this is the number of sessions that I think that it's going to take, I'm pitching an idea and I'm hoping that they buy it literally with their credit card. And so all of these, you know, many of these techniques do come more from a sales side of, 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 of sort of discovery and openness. And some of the other ones come truly from a, from looking at the therapeutic side. Um, and I mentioned just real briefly, there's, there's, a, a, there's a textbook called Motivational Interviewing that actually describes many of these techniques within sort of the therapist context, therapist and or coaching context, to be able to say, how can you ask some of these sort of leading questions in a way that gets the client thinking about the information but not in a way that might naturally lead to defensiveness or judgment or those sorts of things. So, you know, between the, the motivational interviewing, between reviewing a lot of the information on the sales and marketing side, and then truthfully also having some really phenomenal connections within the field of veterinary social work, where I've been able to really thin slice some of the difficult cases within my own practice to then say, how might I have handled this differently, better, you know, or something else in a way that would have allowed us to successfully navigate some of those elements that the client is bringing to this conversation without ever overstepping my role and jumping into a role where I'm saying, oh, I can tell this is really, you know, really difficult for you. Here are some things that you should do for your own emotional health, for example. That's not my job. You know, and that is, you know, as you and I were chatting about a little bit earlier, that's above my pay grade. You know, that is something where I'm able to say, you know what, I can recognize that this is really difficult, but that doesn't mean that I'm now obligated to be the one to try to step in and fill that role for them. Um, and and there's, a, there's a huge difference. And whether we're talking about emotional support for clients or whether that's a trainer or behavior consultant who's being asked to recommend certain medications to a veterinarian, you know, all of these different places are where this conversation could go in that direction and it's really easy to get pulled beyond what our role really primes us to be able to do i think that one of the mistakes that is easy to make when you're starting out is that you're so desperate for business you're so desperate for clients that you fail to kind of pre-qualify people and what i mean by that is it comes down to the setting expectations again it comes down to that tie-in for uh, sales as well is I really want to make sure that when I'm bringing a client on they understand what is what they're signing up for and also that they're committed to the process and I actually just straight up ask people when I do that 10-minute call with them is we go through the problem and I ask the question that you said Chris which is um, you know what would it mean to you say I might phrase it like this what would it mean to you if we don't manage to resolve this problem, right? And then after that question, yes. I might say, so how committed are you to resolving this problem, right? 
and you're this is all about setting expectations this is all about pre-qualifying the client and it makes the one-to-one sessions go so much easier because they already know what they're signing up for so that's been my yes. experience and, 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 and almost always um almost always they say yes we we um have that commitment and we're we're on a better first page moving forwards i have had it where people have said no though you know people say actually you know this is just this isn't that painful to me right this that isn't it isn't this huge deal to me and i say fine you know um in which case i'm and in which case i'm not sure you know do you understand how much work is going to take to resolve this problem and if it's not a big issue for you i think i would be taking your money and we would be you know we wouldn't be getting the results that you want and we that's fine right so we just don't we just don't proceed from there and i've saved their money and i've saved myself the time but that's very rare Yes. And, and I do find that there's, you know, in asking that question, you know, how motivated are you to, to work on this issue right now? Um, sometimes I'll use a one to 10 scale in that scenario from a scale, you know, scale of one to 10, one being, you know, not really all that motivated at all. Uh-huh. 10 being, I will do anything and everything you ask me. How motivated are you to fix this problem? I'm still, uh, you know, if I get an answer that's <laughs> go for it. It's, it, it's also from the sales side of things. I love it. Um, <laughs> Because what it gives, you know, if the client says, and I had, I had literally had this, this conversation um, last, this, within the last week in the practice, in the history form, you know, one of the questions is scale of one to 10, how big of a priority or how big of a concern? And they put a four. I never get fours on my history forms. Uh-huh. It's always a nine or a 10. Otherwise, most people wouldn't have actually made the appointment and waited the three months to get in to see me and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And so that was a really salient discussion point for me to say, you know, I can tell them, you know, based on the way you filled out the history form that, you know, that, that this is a this is a four out of 10. What does that mean to you? And she was like, you know, I'll be honest, you know, we've made some changes since since we scheduled the appointment. If things didn't change, you know what, we'd be OK. It's not that big of a deal. Now, if I responded with a 32 step behavior mod plan, I would have completely missed the boat. And yet, you know, what, what we were able to have a conversation about, and I could say, you know what, let's, let's try to create a plan that requires very little intervention for you, very little shift in terms of what you're already doing. But if we can highlight two or three really specific things that are workable for you, I think we're going to really advance you. And so even though it's only a four, we may be able to do some really amazing things. So, it, it, you know, at the very least, it gives me the ability to understand how to match the plan that I'm giving to the interest, the commitment, to how strong that pain point is for them, and to know how to really guide them in the process. One piece of advice that I was given on one to 10 scales is don't have a seven. Because if you have a seven, then people will <clears throat> put seven as a kind of middle of the road, undecided. And you want them to have to decide between eight and six because it's a bigger psychological difference there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So- and, and I think it's, it's fun to be able to sort of recognize the backstory in terms of how clients make those decisions to, to then be able to, to, again, incorporate that into the conversation as, as much or as little as it's needed. So, Chris, where can people find out more about you? Oh my gosh! Um, There's a couple of different places. Probably the the best one uh, for information about what I'm doing right now is through our our, uh, the the website for the Animal Behavior Clinic, which is the practice that uh, that I own here in Portland, Oregon, uh, in the U.S. Uh, And so the the website is uh, www.animalbehaviorclinic all one word animalbehaviorclinic.net. I am in the process of developing a, a website. Uh, very aptly named drpockle.com that will have my speaking schedule and some other resources as well as links to blogs and podcasts like this one where people can, you know, listen and watch and hear more about all of the different things that we're doing. Uh, We're putting the final touches on that right now. So maybe by the time this airs, it'll be ready. Uh, But there will be links to that from the animalbehaviorclinic.net site once we get that up and running. Oh, super. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's a lot of fun to talk to you and also kind of deliver on what people wanted in the group. Like this was an episode that people actually requested and 
you know, we were talking beforehand about the fact that it just popped up on our Facebook memories that we had become Facebook friends exactly a year ago today, which is a funny coincidence. So I'm glad that that prompted us because it's so much fun to have an opportunity to actually have like a deep conversation. And coaching is like the majority of what we do. So I don't know how it's taken till like episode 57, I think, for this to come up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just glad that it did. We'll take that attitude of gratitude and just be grateful that it did, that we've got it down and it'll be available for people to take a listen to. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Chris is a really cool person. I felt like we got on very well. So anyway, if you haven't already joined us on the podcast discussion group on Facebook, make sure you do that. Just search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. You can also help me out hugely by leaving a review for this podcast on whatever app you're listening to it on. That's always a big help for us. Or just sharing it with a friend that might be interested And don't forget, you can grab the show notes for this episode at nickbenger.com slash chris hyphen parkour. See you guys.